How's how's the audio for Matt? Yeah. Closer. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta like kind of make love yeah, to it. It's a mask. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Friday, September 14th. I am Ben Orenstein, and I'm here with Matt Jankowski. Hey, Matt. Hello. How's it going? Good. How you doing? Pretty good. Awesome. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about what your role is here at ThoughtBot? Yeah. So, I am the chief operating officer of ThoughtBot, mm-hmm. which is a rather glamorous title. The fact that we have C-level titles in a 30-person company is sort of amusing. Uh-huh. Um, so practically speaking, you're the boss. Of me. I'm also one of the owners of Thoughtbot. Okay. I'm one of the co-founders of the Rails-focused version of Thoughtbot. Gotcha. Um, so practically speaking, me and Chad split a lot of the business-focused stuff: HR, bookkeeping, accounting, the sales process, all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, within all of that, specifically, I focus on our consulting schedule, the client work, the sales process, kind of making sure things are relatively efficient and he focuses on the other half of that gotcha yeah he we had him on a couple weeks ago he was talking about some of the product stuff he works on and the the learning things we do with workshops and stuff like that and you're you're focused on the consulting side everything you didn't talk about with him yes right and that's purposeful for a while we sort of didn't didn't have that distinction it was sort of a grab bag of like when something needed to get done one of us would do it and we said well this is even if not, neither of us are particularly good at any of these things now, if we just split the priorities, we'll become good at the thing that has been assigned to us. Yeah. And that's worked out pretty well. Cool. So um, how did you actually come to join the company? So in so I'm a developer by background. Yep. Um, I do not have a computer science degree, contrary to uh, what people would guess. Mm-hmm. I have a technical communication degree with a CS minor. Also a uh, economics minor, maybe an entrepreneurship minor, I forget. That seems uh, like a pretty good fit for what you're doing today. Yeah, so like it, it sort of wound up somewhere that's sort of appropriate given that mix of interest. And totally. that's, that's how I wound up with, with that is I was you know, two years in the, to the CS program and I was like, you know, this is a little, little too math and a little less creative than I'd sort of intended for myself. Mm-hmm. So the tech communication thing was, uh, was the closest degree I could find to what I thought I was I was interested in. Um, anyway, did a bunch of... Uh, PHP development, Java development, whatever, at a job or two right after college, just prior to ThoughtBot, which for me was late 2005 when I joined ThoughtBot, um, which is around the time we became a Rails-focused web app consulting company rather than a tech support company. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been doing, I'd been doing a startup in New York where I was one of the co-founders, and that was sort of my first uh, production Rails app. So I sort of came out of this experience that was fine technically and interesting for me i was basically the only uh developer designer like anything that needed to be done code wise i was doing yeah so i learned a lot but that was also frustrating because there was stuff i couldn't do um sort of came out of that with a lot of and i had been at a really large company right before that so i came out of those experiences with here are a bunch of horrible things about working at large kind of faceless bureaucratic places and here's a bunch of stuff not to do when you're starting your own business so i sort of combined that into a like you know, here's a list of 10 things I don't want to do again. And, Ch- and Chad and John were like, great, we don't want to do those things either. And I was like, all right, good. So you started hanging out and not doing those things. Yeah, it was like, all right, well, and we're all kind of getting into Rails. So if I can find us some work in New York, why don't you guys start hiring people in Boston? And let's see how that goes. And, you know, and I think the, there was very little purposeful, like, Rails is going to blow up. We're going to ride that train. We're going to get involved in open source, whatever. It was more like... 
here's this new thing. Let's feel it out. And, it, and it's good. And we want to use it. And if we can find work, you know, paying work that'll let us use it, we're going to do that. But mm. back in that day, it was very much a like talk people into even using the word letting you is weird now because that's mm. what people come to us for. Right. But back then it was like, you know, convince a CTO that you're not going to ruin their business by using this, you know, quote, unproven technology. So did you come in as a partner right away then? So I came in as a, um, we did a few, I was actually a consultant for them for about a year mm-hmm. and I was doing some web hosting stuff. So they had clients and they would use the Matt Jankowski web hosting business. <laughs> uh, nice. And then I found, I forget what the first, like the first project where I, I think we did one project where I was not yet an employee, didn't own any of the company, whatever. And then that went pretty well. And we sort of transitioned into, all right, Matt, you know, here are some terms where we'll give you partial ownership of the company, assuming you can keep bringing work. There's some commission there. You have a salary. You're an employee now. Like it, it was sort of a, a you know transition from Matt the consultant to Matt the part owner. Um, but I think it's sort of like over maybe a six month period, we were all so happy with how it was going that it was a very clear like, all right, this is what we're going to be doing, and we're going to hire people for this, and it's starting to look like it can be successful. And you know, then as the years went by, it was like. It, it's almost weird to remember back to how that was because yeah. it sort of worked out uh, so well. So, yeah, I, I forget sometimes that there was a New York office for a while. Right. And that's what's funny to me is like, you know, in my seven or eight years now of, of ThoughtBot, I was in New York for 90%. You, you know, I wasn't here until a couple of months ago. Right. But out of our current 30-person company, there's only, you know, there's only four or five people, and most of us are owners, that have been here longer than three years at this point. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, we had... Uh, I was, I'd been working in New York, and I'd always been down there, and I was sort of you know, aware of the New York tech scene and had done that startup. And for a while, I would work on site for our clients. There was one client I worked like 10 months in a row at their office every day. Mm. Um, and I would just sort of float around there and I would come up to Boston for, you know, one week, every four or five weeks. And we had a few other employees for a while in New York. And it, there was sort of no, it was never a like purposeful, like, Hey, we need to have a New York office, which I think is why it didn't become that because we sort of didn't like have that as a goal. It was sort of like, eh, we'll have New York employees and we'll have some co-working space and we'll have some clients down there. But it wasn't like a, you know, let's establish a footprint down right. there. So you were writing code at this point? Yeah, I was definitely, um, yes. Up until very recently, I was always doing, very active as a developer on yeah. the project we were doing. But I was also sort of always in that uh, sort of unspoken like client advisor role. It was like, well, Matt found this work and he's working out of their office <laughs> five days a week. So clearly, like, you know, to the extent we have project management or we have client advisory role, it's, it's going to be Matt doing it. Right. So, like, how, how much are, are you still writing code today? Like, what's the what are the ratios going on recently? It sort of varies. So, like, it um, and it varies like month to month, week to week, whatever. So, I, I would say over this year, you know, it's maybe I've averaged like a day, maybe two days a week, where I'm actually doing technical stuff. There was a two month project where I was doing all the HTML and CSS. There have been projects where I'll sort of maybe I'm not actively coding, but I am actively reviewing pull requests, looking at refactoring, looking at what people have done and sort of just, you know, doing a cursory like review there and trying to contribute back technically, even if I'm not actively writing code. And I, I think the biggest thing there is it's been hard to, it's hard to strike a balance between doing all the different stuff, right? Yeah. And specifically the sales part of what I do and the scheduling part of what I do are rather unpredictable and are, are almost like necessarily interruptive. Like totally. you don't know when a, a lead's going to call you back. But if they call you back at 10 a.m. and you're in the middle of coding, 
you shouldn't just ignore the call and keep coding. And that's really hard for getting code done, right? Because totally. you do need that sort of constant focus. So I try to, you know, separate my week as much as I can and segment like a half day here and there yep. to write code if I need to get that done on a project. I think that's one of the, the my favorite things about the company is like when I was talking to Chad too, and he's still spending several days a week writing code. Right. And it's like we there's basically almost nobody that's not writing code or doing designing or, you know, really actively involved in the day-to-day work that the company does. Right. Like no one's just like sort of looking at it from on high and just being like, oh, yes, the minions are at work now. It's like everyone's doing it. Right. And I think that matters to us. And that's why it's like that. And I think, I mean, I think Chad said some of this, but I think the idea of creating a company where we want to work as employees, not just own, you know, was super important to us. And that we probably like, in fact, I'm sure of it. We definitely lost money or that's the wrong. We made less money than we could have for the first several years of ThoughtBot's existence because we favored like working the right way, having the right process, having the right team, producing quality software hiring the right people, like we put all of that first, which I think in our long-term interest was absolutely the right decision. Mm -hmm. It's always easy to kind of stop and second guess. And it's like, oh man, we can make, you know, whatever thousands, tens of thousands, whatever it is on some short-term thing by sort of cutting corners or, you know, producing work that's not as good as we might've been able to do. Totally. But I think we've done a, you know, by and large, we've avoided those situations and sort of stuck with our guns of like, we want this to be a developer and designer and sort of, you know, creative producer type person, friendly place to be. Yeah. And someone could probably talk me into this being idiotic from a, like running a business standpoint. I don't think it is, but I think you could, it'd be a fascinating conversation to have, but I think it's worked out really well for us. And it's certainly been great uh, recruiting wise. Totally. And it also to get into like what I do in the sales process and handling leads and stuff like that. It, really works well there because I sort of, I go into the initial conversation with someone sort of expecting like, okay, my goal here isn't to like give them this crazy pitch and come in with my, you know, like the sizzle and the steak and the PowerPoint deck and all that and talk about how great we are. It's sort of like, here's what we do and how we do it and we do it well and here's what it costs and here's what past projects have looked like. And it's sort of like, if I leave the conversation feeling more excited about working with them and feeling like they get it and feeling like the way they want to build their app, their business, whatever, is similar to how we want to build those things, it's like, okay, great. So it's more, you know, it's more matchmaking, which I think a lot of technical sales is, but it's definitely more that than some like, you know, crazy high flying pitch where I'm trying to, you know, trick people or, or you know, whatever. It's definitely more um, if we come away agreeing. Maybe we should work together. Totally. I'm, so I, I interviewed uh, David from uh, Staddleship, one of our past clients. Right. And he mentioned that how like mind blown he was. And we're like, and now we'd actually like to have you come in and pitch the company on your idea. <laughs> and he was like, Are you, what? <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure if with him, it, me and Dan Croak were both sort of involved in that, that project at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure which of us would have been the one to say that to him. But yeah, I think that... Um, you know, I think maybe 10% of the people that turns off because they kind of want that special treatment and right. sort of hand-holding and they want to be pitched. But I think a lot of people are like, wow, like this is, these guys have the confidence to do that. And mm-hmm. that's pretty cool because they're sort of saying like, you know what, like we're good at what we do and we're going to find work because of it. So come in and, you know, prove that we should work together. Can you draw analogs for me to the dating world, please? <laughs> uh, I, we're going to edit that part out. Know, no, no. I got married recently. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so uh, you sort of touched on that, but what does like a usual like sales process go? What is it like? What does it look like? Um, it varies a bit. So I think we, we sort of have our startup clients and our, you know, established organization, new product development. So mm-hmm. I think the 
the, the sales cycle and timeline for that is a lot shorter on the startup side. It's usually like if they're self-funded, it's their money and they're ready to go. And if they've just gotten angel or VC money, it's like they're ready to get, they've, they've sort of been given this pile of money with an instruction to go spend it and attempt to build whatever it is. So they're usually like, they've done some pre-vetting. They sort of know what we're about, or they've heard, they got some word of mouth. And it's like, you know, what are the costs? How do you work? Ballpark timeline on what my V1 or my MVP product might take to get to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would say someone contacts us and we do phone calls, meetings that might be over the first, you know, week or two. And usually by the end of week two or maybe into three after the initial contact, we know either, okay, we're not going to work with this person because it's not the right fit or they have a proposal in hand and we're probably going to work with them. And I think that's, I think that's odd because someone, someone's asking me about like what percentage of your, you know, pitches, proposals that you do, do you get assigned clients? And I thought about it for a second and I came up with some absurdly high, it's probably like 80 or 90%. And I think that's sort of because we're not just, we're not working on quantity, we're working on quality. You know, we're not blasting out proposals into the world with the hope that some come back as signed contracts. Yep. We're really getting to that, like, you know, we're 99% sure we're all going to work together. And it's almost a formality to send over the proposal because we've done so much discussion about how it is we might work with them. Right. And it's and it's a two-way street, too. Like, I'm, I've uh, I've been in sales meetings with Dan Croak, and at the end of it, we're both kind of like, yeah, this doesn't seem like a good person we want to work with. And so we're just like, actually, sorry, we're, we'd rather not work with you. Right. And you sort of tell them that, and you give them a reason, which right. that people appreciate. Like, it's like, okay, maybe I'm a little frustrated because I want to work with you guys, but I'm glad you told me, like, where the mismatch is because you're sort of admitting like, okay, we might not have a great process together. So let's go our separate ways. And I always try to send people, there are a bunch of independent consultants we know around Boston, a couple other different firms around the country. I I try and give them some names of, you know, like-minded people that might have better luck. Right. So, so that seems like it would help, um, help projects to succeed because you're sort of weeding them out at an earlier level. Um, can you talk about projects that maybe haven't gone as well? Like what, what have the problems been when there are problems? So it's always communication problems. That's, I mean, that's basically the only problem in the world. Right. <laughs> uh, it's, I don't know that we've ever had something where, uh, you know, clients complained about the technical quality of what we've done. And I've agreed with them that it's been bad, right? Like, like, and I would hate to be in that situation, but I don't, I don't think we find ourselves there because we're so focused on process and the employees we have doing a good job. But I think it's easy to have communication mismatches. Mm-hmm. And specifically, one thing that's, that's happened probably in two or three projects over the last couple of years is, uh, you know, the whole, like the spirit of an open-ended agile iterative. We don't quite know where we're going. It's evolving. You're paying for our time, not specific results. Like we do that because we think that's like the way the software development process works. It sort of has to be like that. And you can't always predict everything ahead of time. So we sort of embrace that instead of fighting it. And that's why we do what we do. I think a lot of people during the the sales pitch process sort of pay lip service to agreeing to that, but they haven't quite, they haven't really internalized it. They don't really agree with it, you know, and you get like halfway into the project or further into the project and they sort of, they start saying things like, oh, well, you know, feature X is going to be done by October 1st, right? And you're like, that's not the way, like if you have some real world marketing event or something we need to hit, tell us about it and we'll try and hit it. But like, the way you're talking about things is not the way we build things. And I think that that, like, if that keeps going on and on, we've had a few clients where it's like, you know, we, we sort of try and end things well, get them to their MVP, and then sort of wind down. Say, you know, like this, the way you want to work isn't the way we want to work. So let's back away peacefully. And uh, usually we can. A few times we back away 
unpeacefully, but that's, you know, you have to do it. Sure. So uh, it seems like a lot of our clients these days are startups. Has that been like an intentional focus change? Sure. Um, it's sort of wandered back and forth. I think, uh, you know, certainly the 2000 five through eight period it was very much the other way it was mm. uh you know team augmentation for very large organizations uh, and we were you know even if we had seven or eight people working for one client that was still sort of a drop in a larger bucket for their internal team mm. i think we had um we had, dan croke actually was a thoughtbot client before he was thoughtbot employee he was doing a startup hired us and then ultimately came work for us and i think that like that sort of that was maybe 07 into 08 so i think the sort of 2008, 9, 10, we sort of started shifting a little more towards startups. Um, the last two or three years, we sort of wobble back and forth. And, you know, some months it's 50-50, some months it's 80-20 with startups favored. I do think that the, I think our process appeals to startups. I think the idea of, if you have an idea and you can spend $50,000 or $500,000 to find out you're wrong. Mm. I think the idea of only spending 50 is very appealing to people, you know, doing startups, especially when they're spending their own money. Right. right. So I think that sort of um, that idea of validating the business as part of the development process and not as like, OK, we just we go in and do tons of development and spend tons of time and money, then find out if we were right or wrong. Some ideas you probably do have to do that way. But a lot of ideas, you can at least try and learn something on the road to getting there and, and stop yourself short. So I think that and. The small team size, the lightweight process, the ability to change your mind. Like, I think all of those things, which we sort of just, you know, as developers and designers sort of want to work that way and want to have that freedom. Yeah. I think that's appealing to startups. So I think it's, I don't know, equal parts purposeful and, and accidental in terms of what the breakdown of clients is. Yeah. Where, where are our clients coming from? Like, how are they hearing about us? A lot of it is word of mouth or the open source community. Um, I think the, you know, so we sort of have a healthy ecosystem between our client work, the workshops we run, the open source stuff, our presence at conferences. And I think those all like, you know, someone will have used paperclip or factory girl as a developer. And then their boss will say, you know, Hey, we're, we're short on teams that we need to add a couple of rails developers next month. Do you know anyone? And they're like, well, we already use a bunch of tools from these guys. Why don't we give them a call? At least feel that out. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of stuff from past clients as well, where specifically in, the you know i guess the u.s northeast but boston specifically there's sort of people that have had um you know if not created successful businesses at least had a successful technical experience of working with us and enjoyed the team and give sort of positive testimonials to their friends and i think it's a a smallish tech community around boston where people kind of know each other yeah so one of the things that we do is we spend 20% of our time on a call an investment day. So we're working on open source or writing blog posts or things like that. Right. Um, I'm sure as like the goal is growing the business, there's been the temptation of like, God, we spend 20% of our time on this. Like, what if we cut that to half a day or no days or something? Like, has that been tempting as you've attempted to? Sure. And I mean, I could probably talk for an hour just about that. Decision. So I think uh, historically... You know, and this has changed over time as we've added more people to the team. We've had to make it a formal thing. I think when we first started, everyone we hired, you know, the first uh, four or five employees other than the three founders were all like had come from communities where open source was important. Right. So I think it, it was never even a discussion. It was sort of just like, of course, that's what we're going to do because that's what we've all always done. And that's that's kind of just what we do. Like, uh 
whether it's from like the Linux world where open source, you know, literally kind of rules the day there or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we sort of just had a, a, there was no policy, but people would spend like their own time, you know, they do client work and stop at five and stay for an hour or two and work on uh, open source stuff. That's how should got built sort of in, you know, personal time. But then there's always like, you know, it blends over. If you can spend half an hour during client work where you're doing something that is productive for the project you're on, but just happens to also extract something to an open source tool, that's fine. We're always very transparent with our clients about how we were doing that sort of thing. Right. So I think, though, as the team got bigger, we sort of realized, like, we, you know, the skeptical way to look at it is, or the short-term way to look at it is, we're wasting this time. It should be build time, right? Like, that. that's the most sort of tight, short-term, profit-focused thing to say. I think the flip side to that, which is where we sort of wound up, is the long-term solution that's correct is if we have a positive open-source presence and develop a reputation because of that or are able to recruit people because of that or sort of circuitously wind up finding clients because of that, that's probably worth it in the long term. I mean, even if we get like one client from any open-source project ever, that probably more than pays for all of the work that ever went into that project, mm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, maybe varies from project to project, but I'd say that's a decent general rule. Yeah. So, so I think then that also got blended in with our, you know, we had, um, four or five years ago now we had Hoptoad, which then became Airbrake. We had a few other, uh, products. Trajectory is still running Airbrake. We sold. So I think that sort of, um, we knew we sort of wanted these uh, like extracurriculars, for lack of a better word, right? Like non-client work, which mm-hmm. was product work, open source development, developing workshop materials for the training, doing this podcast, screencasts, webinars, uh, <laughs> whatever it might be. So I think we sort of needed some structure because what we were telling people was, yeah, you know, spend spend half a day, spend a full day, whatever, each week kind of working on that stuff. As long as it's purposeful. Don't just go wandering around finding random stuff to work on. Mm. But it became hard for people to coordinate. Like, I want to do it Monday morning and you want to do it Wednesday afternoon, but we need to work on the same thing. So sort of like, all right, let's just, you know, let's call it Fridays because that seems easy. And we were able to... The part that impressed me most about that was that we were able to get clients to go along with it. Like, I, I was a little skeptical of like, wait, so we're going to start telling everyone that we only work for them four days a week? Yeah. And Dan was like, well, let's just try it and see if it works. And it worked. So now that's our normal structure is we have Monday through Thursday on client work and Friday's internal. And all the clients seem happy with that. We're still uh, productive for them. And I think it does a decent job getting other work done. Yeah. Is that you think that's long term tenable? Like if, if if suddenly like the Rails market became much had less much less demand and we're struggling now, like it might be harder to tell clients. Like, are we able to tell clients that because demand is so high? Uh, that's a good question. I I think there's maybe some truth to what you're suggesting that we sort of come in with a solid reputation and have a little more leverage than uh, you know we might have in other markets to sort of dictate our own terms. But I think that some part of it is when you come with a solid reputation and the great word of mouth from whoever it might be, and then more importantly, you actually deliver. Like people, like I feel like if if that were true, a lot of people would fire us two to three weeks into the project, mm. right? Because they'd see this like lack of productivity, or or they'd they'd have some experience that was wildly different from what they had ex- been led to expect during the sales process. Mm. So I feel like we set the expectations correctly, and then we are. Productive. I I think sort of what I came around to was like they kind of don't care. Like 
I think people like the idea of the iterative process where you can make change quickly. I think they like the transparency, the collaboration. Like we don't have project managers here. Everyone just works directly with our designers and developers on projects. Mm -hmm. I think people really like that. So I think when expectations are set correctly and people see results constantly coming out and like every week or multiple times a week, you have a new staging or production deploy where it's like, you know, wow, we're really, we're pushing out new features. We're getting feedback from users and we're incorporating that into the next week or two's changes. I think if that's happening, it's sort of like, you could spend one day a week, and if you still got the same results, a lot of people wouldn't care. Yeah, I think you you're, def you're probably bumping into diminishing returns, right? Like if four days gets you X amount of work, like what does the fifth day get you? Probably not another 20%, probably slightly less than that. Right. And, and like there was like, for instance, that 37 Signals blog post where they say, like, you know, during this period of time, we drop from five days a week to four days a week, and we get the same amount done. Right. There's also some... Um, there's some pace to projects that's dictated more by real world schedules than total developer time. Like there's only, you, you can only review stories and accept or reject them so fast on mm -hmm. the client side. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes like the clients have other things to do with their day. They're not just waiting on us to give them stories to accept. They're out in like sales meetings, doing biz dev, looking for partnerships, whatever it might be. So there's sort of some like real world rhythm that can't be defeated by just throwing more, developer time at things. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why people, sometimes people will ask, like, I'll suggest, you know, what about a one designer, two developer, three month project? Let's do that. I think that'll get us roughly to what your MVP will be. And they'll say, all right, well, can we make it four developers and get that done in one month instead? And I'm like, no, we could, like, if you want to pay us more, I'll cash your checks. But no, we can't because you can't work that fast. Like, like I sort of just know from experience that there's a limit to your mm. ability to help steer the software that we're going to be building for you. Interesting. And that sort of caps things a bit. Yeah, I never think about that ratio of like clients to developers as being a productivity measure. Right. And I don't know what number of people it is, but there's clearly some, I mean, if we had 10 developers and you were the person that was had to accept or reject all of their work, like you would spend all day doing nothing but that, right? You, you couldn't even keep up with it because right. they'd be delivering more than you could review. Mm-hmm. Huh. So there's something yeah. to that. So there is a point. There's a curve somewhere where right. it just becomes too much. Yeah. Huh. So do you have any um, specific... We should make an info... Have we ever accompanied a podcast with an infographic? No. Because we should... I mean, it'll be completely fake. <laughs> oh, naturally. We should make some data and put one. Absolutely. And then yeah. someone can describe it for the people that don't want to go and view the actual yeah. graphic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is... That's a very bad idea. Okay. So do you have any... <laughs> do you have any uh, specific goals that you're working on for this year? Or things you'd like to see the company do? Um, you know, so we, we all came up with, um, the management team sort of helps each other edit our own job descriptions pretty constantly. Uh, so for me, a big thing, and this was sort of like going back to roughly a year ago. So I, I had lived in New York for a while. I moved out to Boston last fall, sort of a trial run, moved back to New York briefly, got married, moved back to Boston now permanently. So I think going back to last August or September or so, one of my biggest things to focus on was just our utilization and not even improving it, but just like tracking it at all. And we sort of, we just didn't have good analytics and metrics in place. We knew we were doing generally well based on the results at the end of each quarter or the year, but we sort of wanted a little more awareness of that. And, and that sort of went across. So like Chad's gotten more focused on accounting, bookkeeping, hiring. I've gotten more focused on our sales product, our general efficiency, utilization, and all of that. And th those are sort of like, all that stuff winds up being so simple to do and then so beneficial after the fact. And you look at it and you're like, how are we ever not doing that? This is so clearly valuable and takes so little time to put together. Yeah. Um, so I think for me that uh, looking at our general utilization and looking at the 
quality of the projects we're doing, trying to be more aware of what we're taking on. As we've added now the the San Francisco location, we have a few people in Europe. Uh, and that that's all relatively new, so it's not really a solved problem yet, but sort of trying to steer like how do we correctly allocate both internal people and external projects to the right places. Um, and I think that, for, you know, for me coming up, we've gone now from, I think we ended last year with 16 or 17 employees and now we're at 30 plus, right? So there's just, it's like, it's new territory that we haven't hit before. So I think that's sort of my core thing is make sure we don't get burned by our own ambition here and make sure this stays like slow and steady, responsible growth and that we have systems in place to keep things moving. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned um, the power of starting to track certain things because so, so Chad brought up the same thing. And it's like as soon as you start a process where you can have numbers associated with something and you start tracking it and paying attention to it, it's become so much easier to improve it and be aware. And just being aware of it even is like, oh, actually, our utilization is X. Right. That's actually that's not great. And we didn't know it wasn't that great. Right. And, and you almost you know, until you come up with a number, it could be 20% or it could be 90%. But if you don't know, it's like, what are you shooting for? You know, so just like, yeah, knowing that it's 50 and deciding you want it to be 60 instead, it's like, okay, that's, you know, that should have some that should have some 20% correlation with an increase in revenue or something, right? Like, you should, mm-hmm. you, should have, you should see some result, if you can make that change. Chad said something funny to me a few years ago, where he, it was like, he's like, Matt, no matter what we do, our bank account balance keeps going up. <laughs> and I was like, that's a fantastic problem. How did you, like, you're a business genius and you've solved, you know. And then I was like, I don't think literally whatever we do. Right. And we've become more aware of that in uh, that's good recent years. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what is something that you think we could do a better job of? I think the um, two, two things that are challenging for me externally and internally. So I think internally, uh, when we had a really small team, it was like literally the entire com- company could be involved in every conversation we had, right? If you only have seven or eight people and you're all in campfire all the time or whatever, and you're, and you're only working on like two or three projects across that group, you can talk about like every technical decision, process decision, client relationship thing, whatever. So you, you get this incredible, like everyone's on the same page about everything, you know? And I think as the company's grown, it's, it's not only impractical to do that, it's sort of stupid to try to do that because you'd spend a lot of time just talking to each other and pinging each other and updating each other. So I think trying to strike a balance, like that educational aspect is important to us. And I, I like the idea that people, we come up with a new best practice, you know, for something you do in Rails or a designer comes up with new, you know, new CSS best practice or something. I like the idea that that can get out to the rest of the company. I like that when there's something that's, and it's usually a communication problem, when something goes wrong, client relationship wise, I like to identify that, document it, and hope we don't repeat it, right? Mm -hmm. So like finding ways to do all those things and actually get it out to everyone in a way that's not totally constantly disruptive to the actual work we're doing. We haven't quite solved that yet. I think we do a good job, but I think there's, you know, we could do a better job. Mm -hmm. And then externally, I think the, the sort of striking a balance between, oh man, we have this, we have this project winding down, so I need to quickly replace the work for the people that are going to be coming off of that. I'll take whatever work I can get, right? Versus like, no, I want to be confident in our ability to get work and select the right projects, right? Because when you, when you don't do that, you wind up working on something for three or four months that you're not quite like, it's not bad, but you're not excited about it. And it's sort of not, you know, it's not, it's a good fit, but it's not the best fit, right? Mm-hmm. So I think having, uh, 
some more you know purposeful selection of the work we're doing and who we're working for and the types of projects and keeping them both technically interesting and that they're different from what we've done in the past and like you know creatively and business interesting and that we actually like what they're doing or agree with what they're doing or think it's you know think it's going to be a successful business i think those two are things where it's like it's not like this massive problem we're trying to solve but it's like those are there's a big incentive to make both of those better Mm -hmm. for me so i think that's definitely a focus in the coming months gotcha so if if everything goes to plan as it's laid out right now what do you how do you see your role changing in the next couple of years um i think i'll be on a yacht in the caribbean just (laughs) so everything goes to a reasonable plan oh it's a reasonable plan um a likely plan. <laughs> so I think the, um, you know, the hiring goal is roughly one person a month in each of the offices. So if that goes to plan, then, you know, we'll have 50 some people here a year from now, which is across the offices, mm-hmm. um, which is a slight departure from what we've done in the past, but I think is, you know, we've proven that it can work so far. And I think we're doing it in a way where it makes sense. So I think uh, it's it's important to me to keep some connection to the actual development work, right? And I like, I think if there's a day where I'm doing nothing but sales and scheduling and zero technical work, that's not appealing to me. I, you know, I need I need to sort of keep some connection there, and that's kind of core of what I do. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, there's so much I don't know about the business parts of that. And I like learning new stuff. So I'm sort of looking forward to, I don't even know what the challenges are going to be. I just know there are going to be some. And I'm sort of looking forward to figuring that out. One thing that was that was like amusing for me, I, and maybe Chad thought it was just normal, but the first time when we added like, um, we changed health insurance plans and we switched to a new, or we added a 401k for the first time. This is like three or four years ago now. But that was a fascinating process for me because I never... It like hadn't occurred to me five years ago, ten years ago, of like, oh, you're going to be looking through 401k providers and like getting that in place for mm-hmm. this business that you own. Mm-hmm. But it was very much something that we, for ourselves as employees, were like, yeah, we need to have a solid health plan and we need to have a solid 401k program. So like, let's figure out how you get those in place and let's get them in place and let's make it like, you know, reasonable for us as owners. So we're not just throwing money at problems, but also good for ourselves as employees who work here and who want to get good benefits. So mm-hmm. that was sort of an interesting thing. So I think there'll be stuff like that where things come up and we sort of need to to steer the business part of ThoughtBot in ways we haven't thought of yet. Gotcha. All right, I have two personal questions for you. Yeah. First is, how do project management techniques transfer to child rearing? Oh. Uh, one thing that transfers is patience. <laughs> so the sort of um, <laughs> being able to maintain a calm while there's a crying child and you're trying to rock her to sleep or mm-hmm. swing her to sleep or in any way get her to not be awake. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of patience needed there. Yeah, I think same thing sometimes on the client front. Someone's <laughs> got a crazy idea. You've got a loud voice in a room during a meeting and just sort of stepping back, letting it play out and then reacting maybe to rocking it. them to sleep rocking them to sleep if need be yeah, yeah. warm model giving them some milk yeah absolutely <laughs> how's your uh, how's your sleep deprivation going uh you know it's hit and miss it's um mostly hit in terms of being deprived yeah uh it's uh but she's cute and giggles sometimes right. so you That's know if it wasn't for that I, I don't know about this baby right but, uh 
redeeming qualities as well. She, she makes up for her uh, her bad moments with some good moments. Gotcha. Uh, the other question is, um, you're spending, I, th- I think, all day on a standing desk? Yes. How do you like that? Good. And... So, the, uh, and again, this could be a nine hour story, but I had a spinal tumor removed a couple of years ago and then have had a, a you know, now multi-year rehab process that took me from not being able to move into a wheelchair, into a walker, using a cane, now back to walking on my own. So the standing desk thing is, this is like a subtle distinction, but I, I wind up being in pain from sitting down all day. Hmm. So I think I'm probably getting the health, same health benefits that normal people who should be using stand-up desks would be getting, but I'm also getting a, like, my legs don't get as tight as they do from sitting down all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I try, and I, one thing that I don't know, though, is, like, I had tried it four or five years ago at a client site of ours in New York, and I just tried, I tried to go all standing desk all the time. And it was, like, by day, you know, four or five, I would go home and my lower back would just be killing me and just like that like especially if you don't have a like slightly padded surface standing on like a hardwood floor all day long is like really kind of i think you need to like work through it. you know it's like you go so you start going back to the gym after you haven't been in a while it kind of like totally takes a couple weeks to uh to get back in shape so for me though it's been uh it's been pretty good although i can't feel my legs correctly so maybe it's actually awful <laughs> it's sort of hard for me to to assess that i do recommend people try it though i think it's uh it's easier for me to stay focused like it, you, you kind of in a chair you can kind of zone out sometimes you get a little too comfortable i think it sort of keeps you like you know you're on the right physical level looking at your screen and yep. getting things done cool yeah. um i think that actually wraps pretty much everything up uh thanks very much for coming by and chatting with me sure thank you so uh, if people want to get in touch with you what's a good way to do that uh, they can email me, matt at thoughtbot.com. Mm-hmm. They can follow me on Twitter, which is at Jankowski. That's my last name. Excellent. They can stop by our office. Yeah. Uh, they could try and find my apartment. They could walk around Cambridge and look for me. You'd be the guy at the stand-up desk. I'd be the guy at the stand-up desk or the guy walking around Cambridge listening to podcasts. Uh-huh. Holding a crying baby. Yes. <laughs> All right. Now, often on the podcast, we'll take some time to answer your questions. If you have something you'd like us to tackle on the air, you can email that question to info at thoughtbot.com or tweet to us at, at thoughtbot. Today's podcast was recorded by Shauna Quinthal, edited by Edward Lovell, and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.